The Spectator is Europe's fastest growing current affairs magazine. Subscribe today and find out why. You'll get 12 weeks in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of Spectator gin worth £30. So if you do the math, you'll work out that is absolutely free. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash gin. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. The videotaped footage of Metropolitan Police officers invading the sanctuary of a Polish Catholic church in Bowen on Friday at a particularly sacred moment in the church's year, at a particularly sacred moment in the service commemorating Good Friday, will not easily be forgotten, or should not easily be forgotten. I suppose the temptation is, now that it's Easter, to think of it as something that happened before Easter that was in the headlines last week, and people, having been very cross about it, will eventually just relegated to those list of awful things that happened. But I think that is, in a very sinister way, a rather historic event, because I cannot think of any precedent for a church service being invaded by police in such a blundering and threatening manner. It's the sort of behaviour that, as several people pointed out, would have been familiar to Poles of an earlier generation back in their home country. I'm here with Dr Gavin Ashenden, former chaplain to the Queen, to talk about the wider significance of an incident that I know has horrified both of us. What does it tell us about the police, about secularism in society, and about the churches? Gavin, I wonder if I could begin by saying that I see this grotesque incident as a manifestation of the malign influence of liberal bureaucracy, rather than a clear-cut assault on Christianity by secular ideology. And by that, I don't mean to deny that there is such a thing as secular ideology. And I certainly don't mean to deny that public life in Britain has been influenced in recent years to an almost incomprehensible degree by dogmas that were once associated with the relatively far left, identity politics, gender ideology, fanatical anti-racism. But I've been thinking about what happened on Friday and reflecting that, in the end, this tells us just what a terrible thing bureaucracy can be. I don't think that the police officers who behaved so appallingly on Good Friday were knowing agents of secular ideology. I don't think they were particularly anti-Christian, though they did a very anti-Christian thing. I think they were massively ignorant of Christianity. And I think they reflect this impulse to enforce rules in society which gives meaning to all sorts of professions, possibly most professions, that have lost their traditional role in society. And therefore, they cling on to a set of behavioural norms heavily influenced by the left, to which they don't perhaps feel any particularly passionate attachment, but which nonetheless gives them a sense of meaning that they've lost. I think the police lost their sense of meaning after the McPherson report, and they haven't found it. Instead, they've clung on to something that's been imported from the rest of the public sector and from other parts of public life, which is this ethos of liberal bureaucracy, which is enormously intolerant in its puritanical insistence on enforcing rules. And I think we've both discussed before that this is something that is happening inside as well as outside the church. Gosh, you're quite right when you say there's a new intolerance based upon a neo-Puritanism. I'm sure that's a very powerful combination that's driving things. But I want to start in the analysis of what is a very complex, multifaceted event and phenomenon in a different place. 
I remember watching the video and I saw Mr. Plod, a rather <laughs> clumsy policeman who didn't demand confidence in his body language. And he went to the lectern as if he was someone standing up on a bingo night in a, in a local hall. There was no sense of the numinous or the sacred or that he was entering anything other than a secular building. But in front of him, there was another woman policeman. And I was very interested because she genuflected to the altar. She walked in a different way. And I remember saying to myself, I wish she had been addressing the congregation because she would have brought some congruence between what the police wanted to say and the event itself. But it wasn't her. It was this man without any sensibility at all. I thought that what had happened was he was reflecting something that's a very powerful event in society, which is the, the vacuum of transcendence. And it's this vacuum of transcendence which has been filled by a whole series of other things that are complex that we're going to try and unravel with the effect that intolerance and neo-Puritanism have energised them. So, for example, although you don't see this as an anti-Christian act, and it is not specifically an anti-Christian act, the dynamism what takes becomes anti-Christian because it deals with, Christi with Christianity without any sense that what Christianity is trying to do is to introduce the sacred into our experience or interpret it. What I think we've had described before as the blob, the great woke hegemony, is actually a highly idealistic reflex in the human heart of seeking values, but without any forgiveness at all. And finally, I thought that, there was a, that it was a dreadful act of racism, because if the priest had been English, he might have well said to the policeman, well, you may think this is illegal, so how many people would need to be in here for it to become legal again? And they could then have had a sensible conversation. But the poor priest, being Polish, was so disaccommodated by the muscular arm of the law, he, he gave up and allowed the thing to be closed down, which was almost certainly illegal and totally improper, and even if not in motivation, effectively anti-Christian. I'm going to disagree with one thing you said, Gavin, and that's your use of the word racism. I wonder if you too haven't been affected by the sort of ubiquitous, promiscuous use of this wretched word. No, I'm using it on purpose. Um, I don't get to use it very often. I'm not sure this was an act that was directed at the Polish ethnic heritage. I do think that the church was an easy target in that there were so many services that the police couldn't have disrupted, however flagrant the breaking of the rules, and there's no evidence that there was flagrant breaking of the rules in this church. I was one of the first journalists to tweet about this at a time when the, the video in question hadn't been looked at many times, and I was absolutely spitting with rage. And I described it as an absolute insult to our beloved Polish community, and it is a beloved Polish community. My grandparents worked with the Polish Air Force during the war. I'm very aware of the tremendous benefits that Britain has accrued from influx of Poles, both after the war and then the, the second wave in much more recent years. When I say that they presented a relatively easy target, perhaps that's the wrong word, because I don't think Christianity itself was being targeted here. But having discovered that there was a church breaking the rules, or a religious congregation breaking the rules, the Metropolitan Police would not have done anything about it if they had opened themselves up to the charge of racism, for example, by disrupting a black Pentecostal service, where I'm sure social distancing is not always strictly observed, or a Muslim service, or a Hindu service, or a Jewish service for that matter. All of these things would have created an absolute public relations nightmare for the Metropolitan Police. This incident has caused a public relations problem for the Met, and I've been very struck by how horrified people in America have been, for example, and I think all around the world, and I hope that this particular Polish government, which isn't one to take this sort of insult lightly, will take the matter further. But the fuss would have been so much greater if it actually had been possible to invoke 
racism in a very sort of straightforward way. But this is the point. Um, we use racism very, very badly in our public discourse. Uh, racism is the hate crime and it's a thought crime. So you never actually know what's going on inside someone's head. And it's used as a scattergun, a moral attack from which there is no private or public recovery. But what I'm trying to say is it's utterly... In, in my own campaign against this use and misuse of racism, this would be an example. It was effectively racist in the sense it was against the Poles. They are a, a race, unlike Islam, which isn't. And you're quite right, it wasn't deliberate, but, but it happened to be racist. Because if, as you say, it had been against the Jews, everyone would have jumped up and down quite rightly. If it had been against black Pentecostals, people had done the same. But because they were white and they happened to be a different race and therefore linguistically challenged so that the priest couldn't negotiate. It was an effective piece of racism, not intended by the policeman, I'm sure. It just happened. It, it... Well, I have to say, I don't think that Poles constitute a race. The categorizations of race, which are very sensitive subjects anyway, don't fit naturally to people from Eastern Europe or Western Europe or whatever. They're white. You mean to hate the French is not racist? I think to hate the French can be anti-French and it can be xenophobic, but I don't think it's racist, no. Because race has a specific meaning, which is much fought over, but nonetheless. Anyway, this is I think this is a bit of a red herring. <laughs> um, the, the important point was I don't think that race has a proper definition and that's part of our difficulty. But I don't mean to press it here. It's not the important issue. The, the important issue is um, how we unravel the strands of disrespect and the improper use of the law and the COVID regulations in a highly charged, culturally very sensitive and important event. You mentioned earlier that the police had become completely tone deaf to any sense of the transcendent. I have to say, from my own memories and watching old episodes of The Sweeney, I wasn't particularly aware of any sense of transcendence among the old Bill. Uh, what I do think they've lost is a clearly defined, widely respected role in society. I think that the McPherson report, which introduced a very dangerous concept of institutional racism into our discourse, did play a part in dismantling what was a racist, because it was directed against people of a different colour, but let's not go there, um, canteen culture, as it was called. And I don't think anything very constructive has replaced it. Essentially, we've gone from canteen culture to social workers, health and safety, finger-wagging, quite authoritarian social workers. What it boils down to is that the police are in desperate need of reform. But that they are, many of them, massively ignorant of the Christian religion is hardly surprising since people at large are massively ignorant of the Christian religion. And most police officers are a good deal younger than we are, Gavin, and therefore they won't be taught much about it. And it sounds to me as if one of the police officers, the man, really didn't have a clue where he was, what was going on around him, what he was doing by marching onto the sanctuary in that way. I remain absolutely astonished that anybody could decide that this is an appropriate course of action when, if social distancing rules, rules were being broken, there would have been so many possible ways of dealing with it without effectively ruining the Tridium and Easter for people who take their faith very seriously indeed, and causing a worldwide scandal, not one that has angered the really powerful interest groups in society, the race relations industry, as Peter Simple used to call them, and all those multinational bodies that agitate professionally, but nonetheless has really caused scandal all over the world. I don't think the policeman knew what he was doing, because I think knowledge of what Christianity is, 
is decreasing by the year. It's just evaporating. Yes, and I think that was the real problem. As you quite rightly say, it's ignorance of Christianity. It's interesting that I haven't heard an outcry from our senior voices complaining that society should have known better. <clears throat> but I want to go back to the notion that, that without restoring the medieval notion of sanctuary, there has been a sense in our lifetimes of holy people and holy places. But it's Christianity that has been evacuated of this sense of the sacred and the holy and treated as if it's just a sociological phenomenon. And I think that was the sin or the mistaken judgment in the policeman was treating it as though it was a social gathering. It could have been a pub garden or a barbecue. It happened to be one of the most holy moments in the Christian year. And it was his ignorance that lay at the root cause of this. And no doubt the ignorance of the rest of the society and that there hasn't been a huge scale outcry in this country but in other places across the world where they've been where they remain more literate there quite rightly has been what do you think of the responses or lack of responses of the catholic bishops in this country they're not just the catholic bishops i mean this is a point where the archbishop of canterbury also ought to have joined this is something that should have allied christians right across the spectrum in order to communicate something of both the gospel the gospel narrative what they were doing why they were doing it why it's important I think the lack is a reflection that Christians in the West have had the stuffing completely knocked out of us. And there are very few people willing to stand up in the public space and articulate what the faith is about. But it's extremely important because whether or not you acknowledge or believe or identify wokeness or the blob as being an alternative religion, it's driven by religious instincts. And one of the things Christians have to do is, is to be able to make common cause with other people's religious and spiritual value-laden instincts and explain that they are better served within the Christian narrative and Christian understanding. I mean, the fact that, for example, wokery is so utterly ruthless, there is no forgiveness for anybody who, even as a teenager, may have put out a tweet 20 years ago. To have a value system with no forgiveness is a dreadful thing as part of a civilization. And one of the things Christians should be doing is to say, well done in wanting a value system, but here's a better one. I think we might disagree about the extent to which wokeness, and I, th I think now we're in danger of overusing that word, probably have been for some time truly incarnates religious impulses. First of all, it's very difficult to define religious impulses because religion does so many things in society. It's very difficult to define religion. Therefore, it's difficult to define religious impulses. But the impulse to regulate behaviour, I think, was probably bound up with the formation of religious bodies in the first place. In fact, there's no doubt about it. So these things are connected in complicated ways, and it's a little bit difficult to say whether the sort of finger-wagging puritanical impulse actually predates or antedates organised religion, or whether the two of them have always been intimately related. But you talk about the Archbishop of Canterbury, and you also say quite rightly that the churches have had the stuffing knocked out of them. Well, it's a paradoxical situation that, you know, if ever a man looked like he'd had the stuffing knocked out of him, by secular bullies, it's Justin Welby. He seems to be sort of cringing and collapsing under the weight of his office. But his own particular response, which is to sound a little bit like a cross between a health and safety manual and the leader pages of The Guardian, with a touch of Black Lives Matter thrown in as well, is actually helping to knock the stuffing out of Christianity itself. Because the fact remains there isn't a single truly impressive Christian leader anywhere in the United Kingdom. By leader, I mean a prominent figure with responsibility for a very large number of souls. I can't think of one. Certainly ain't Vincent Nichols. 
I, 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 well, part of the problem is that both the Anglicans and, and Catholic bishops have been treated as bureaucrats by many of the people who organise them and are specifically... In... Well, I, wonder, I wonder why that is. It's because, you know, if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, excuse me, but that's what they are. Well, I, I, but I'm not sure it's entirely right to blame them for doing their best to exercise their responsibilities within a structure that they don't entirely endorse or believe in. But, but leaving it, putting that to one side... Good Lord, if you think they're doing their best, Gavin, I'm very surprised, <laughs> and there is no common ground between us whatsoever. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not... I'm, of course they're doing their best. But let's leave them to one side for a moment. Let's, let's... I suppose they are, I'm sorry to make a point of this. I suppose they are doing their best, but their best isn't good enough. In other words, the wrong people have been promoted. There's been one disastrous appointment after another to almost any see you care to name Catholic or Anglican for 20, 30 years. So it's unrealistic to expect these people doing their best to have any impact whatsoever on society. But, but it's not helped by the fact that religions and the churches have had to inhabit a bureaucratic mantle forced upon them, partly by health and safety legislation, partly by the way in which we've organised society. But what I'd like to do is to get back to this idea of religion, because I think it's such an unhelpful word. And we could fall out over it to no good whatsoever. I've always wanted to avoid using it. It triggers people to go down another rabbit hole. I think what you have is there's a common search for order and meaning. And within the monotheisms and the religions, this includes transcendence and the sacred. But outside them, it includes the social and the secular. And that's the great divide. And if we talk about religion, then we run the risk of confusing ourselves with contested definitions. But if what you say is that we're all looking for order and meaning, and the only question is whether we ban transcendence and the sacred, which is what secularism has done. And it's this banning of transcendence and the sacred that I think is the great Achilles heel in our secular society. And one of the things we should be doing as Christians is to say we, we are united in a form of humanitarianism in the older sense of the word for all the sense of, of ethics and values that humanity ought to celebrate. But you need to include the transcendence and the sacred. Otherwise, you control them in a way that is harmful to the human quest. So I'd want to avoid the word religion, but it's precisely the lack of the sacred and the transcendent that caused the policeman to make the terrible mistake he made and not to know he'd done it. I have to say, Ken, I don't think the police ever were particularly responsive to the sacred and the transcendent. I think there's a little bit of a danger that we're thinking of religion in Western terms. All religions, I think, incorporate elements of the transcendent, whatever that might mean, and the sacred. But many world religions are religions, as you well know, of orthopraxy, in which the regulation of behaviour is a sacred thing in itself. Now, that is more true of both Islam and Judaism, for example, than it is of Christianity. Uh, yes, I agree with that, but but I'm not suggesting a sort of Gnostic, horizontal, free transcendence. I, I'm, I'm suggesting that everyone agrees that human behaviour ought to be ordered, and Judaism and Islam do it in, in, a, in a particularly effectively mixed way. It's, it's often the Christians who sometimes live in a sort of dualistic, Gnostic world, but I'm saying that they ought to be mixed by allowing a recognition of the transcendent. And it's the, the banning of the transcendent and the sacred by secular utopianism that causes this great antipathy between, if we're going to use the word, the religious and the non-religious. I'm not sure whether the transcendence of the sacred are being banned. I'm not sure that there's enough transcendence is being produced by the churches in order for it to be banned. What I do think is happening is a bureaucratization, which I think is implicit in the way technology is developed, in the way the structure of the economy and society has changed so fast during the 20th century, means that people look 
for meaning in the enforcement of rules, which they probably regard as very benevolent rules, rather than in other aspects of the performance of their job, which are no longer distinctive in the way that they were. I was reading Irving Goffman's book, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life, and one of the things, it's a brilliant book, it was written in 1956, 1958, I think. One of the things that strikes you is that when he talks about waitresses or policemen or whatever, the extent to which people were defined by the jobs that they did. Now, that's no longer true. It's particularly no longer true of the police in the way that it was. The police are still a very distinct and powerful body in society, but they don't have the, if you like, they've lost their own little tiny trappings of transcendence. They've lost, the uniqueness has gone. The special respect that was afforded to them has gone. And it's no surprise because in a way they have been forced, and I think this is true of professional institutional religious bodies all over the world, to take refuge in effectively a set of rules which has replaced top-down hierarchies. Sounds very pretentious, but I do think there's something in there. I think this is very good. I, I like this idea because I think for as long as the police were acting as agents of public conscience, there was an element of transcendence in the notion of conscience. In other words, it, it, it could include or exclude the divine, depending on your, your preference. But it was capable of uh, being infused by the transcendent value. So the word banning is is no good, and I can't, I'm trying to look, think of another word. It, it's it's negating or blindsiding or refusing to acknowledge the possibility of some kind of blinkeredness about the transcendence. And what that does, you're quite right, is it is it removes part of the authenticity of people who have agency for public conscience and turns them into bureaucrats. In other words, it's almost as if both the, the police and the bishops have suffered from the same kind of uh, devaluation in, in societal terms because each have been evacuated of elements of transcendent authenticity they otherwise might lay claim to. I couldn't agree more, and I think you make a very good point about the police, which I failed to articulate earlier, which is that although the police definitely weren't transcendent in themselves, one of the things you noticed about the behaviour of the old-fashioned police, and this was true probably even more in the United States than this country, is the tremendous respect that they showed for religion, and for Christian religion particularly. There were many, many Christian police officers. In America, Catholicism was a very, very important force within the police. In Australia, the Catholic bit of the police force had a very, very powerful identity, and that's gone. I don't know to what extent it was true in England or the United Kingdom, but what we saw vanish on Friday afternoon was any recognition that the commemoration of Good Friday is something that needs to be treated in a special way by the police, even if they don't subscribe to any of the doctrines that underpin it. Well, that's what I was trying to express when I said the recognition of the sacred. So whatever the non-recognition of the sacred is, that's, that's the word I'm looking for. I think the question is where we go from here. I'm cross that there hasn't been more fuss about this outrage. I was beside myself with rage when I saw that video. I did contact somebody in the government, and I know that there are people in Westminster, people, people in the House of Commons who are very angry about what happened. I just hope that they will have the courage to do something about it. But in the end, it's clear that if it is at all possible, the police, you've got to start somewhere, the police need to be reformed. It surely must be possible for the police to recover some of their traditional identity. For example, they're focused on fighting crime at the expense of this often 
counterproductive attempt to recast themselves as health and safety officers. Now, the problem is, of course, that at a time of COVID, it's so obviously in the public interest for the police to enforce health and safety norms that it's as if COVID writes you a blank cheque for any sort of behaviour you care to indulge in. And it's as if the awful liberal bureaucratic ethos has been turbocharged by COVID, not just in the police, but right across the public sector and also in the private sector as well. I mean, I agree. You were saying, what what can be done? And then you hoped that politicians would speak out and that the police would be reformed. On the reparative side, that's all exactly right. But I was trying to think, well, what responsibility does the church have for trying to mend what has been done amiss? I would have hoped that we would have had some voices raised talking about the meaning of Good Friday and, (laughs) and actually how the use of the apparatus of the state to enforce rules was exactly what Good Friday was in fact commemorating and why the mishandling of Good Friday actually shows how important the message of Good Friday actually is because it talks about the missed inner meaning of the Christ and the misuse of secular force by both the political and religious establishment in Jerusalem. But I wondered why that hasn't happened and has it happened because the Christian bishops are tired, demoralised? Has it happened because Christian journalists don't think they want to raise their voice in favour? Has it happened because the media won't allow it? Why the silence? At the moment, I think the silence is quite as culpable from our side as the policeman's bad behaviour was from his. I think you're right. I'm not entirely sure that it's silence. I think that what we're hearing is not so much total silence. I'm sure the question of Good Friday has been addressed in a number of soporifically boring sermons and letters by bishops. I'm sure references have been made to the unfortunate incident in Balaam, but what you don't hear are voices raised. It's almost become one of the distinguishing features of the Christian churches, that of all bodies in society, they are the least likely ever to get angry about anything, other than the things that you're expected to get angry about, such as racism. And what a contrast with Jesus himself, who seems to spend an enormous amount of time with his voice raised, even though, of course, we pay a lot of attention at times when his, his voice wasn't raised and he was, for example, speaking the Beatitudes or whatever. But he didn't mince words. The clergy have become professional mincers of words. Yes, and the church got into trouble in the early centuries precisely because it raised its voice contesting issues of authority and ontology. And if ever there was a time to contest issues of authority or ontology by by the church, this is the time. We, we ought to do it while there's a window left open to us. And again, I'm surprised and disappointed, except that, you know, that, that's what Holy Smoke is doing. So congratulations for at least offering a platform to raise questions of authority and ontology. That's very flashy, Kevin, but why on earth should it be that it looks as if I was one of the first journalists to mention this in the, in the public domain? You mentioned the press, Christian journalists. There are Christian journalists, but some of them will run a mile from witnessing for their faith, a faith enormously greater than mine, because they think their readers aren't interested, because you won't get internet traffic. Well, actually, the hugely growing audiences from this podcast, I think, disprove that. It's, it's a subject that profoundly depresses me. Can I just move on to one last thing? And this really did surprise me, which is that on Easter Sunday, Boris Johnson gave an address to the nation, rather as if he were the Queen, and some people thought that was a bit odd. But if you listen to what he said, he talked unequivocally about the significance of Jesus Christ 
in a way that strongly implied that he was professing a personal faith, which may have come as a surprise to lots of people. Actually, it came as a surprise to me because his words were so unequivocal. Did you, did you hear that as well? I did, and, and I think there are, there are two ways of approaching it. One is charitable and one the other is uncharitable. I mean, the charitable is it sounded like he was a committed Christian and, and it was one of the most Christian things that had been said in the public space outside the Queen's speech in living memory, really. I mean, it was quite extraordinary. Absolutely. In my lifetime, I think. I, I, so a number of people talked about on social media and, and my response was, this is enormously welcome and it's quite wonderful. But if he believes the things that he said are true then the first thing he needs to do is to, for example, abolish the equalities legislation, which, which has introduced new ideas of blasphemy and entirely undermined Christian Judeo-Christian culture in this country and also threatened freedom of speech and thought. But so one doesn't always expect there to be joined up lines between what politicians say and what they do. But I thought the implications of what he said, if they were true, were enormous. They were nuclear. And, and if the lines aren't joined up, then, of course, you spend a moment thinking about uncharitable implications which I suppose I thought probably were, well, you know, maybe in the light of the Balham incident on Friday, he was trying to regain some credibility in, in contrast to the mistake. But, but you know, I, I've no idea. Um, I'd like to take it at face value and be encouraged by it. But then if that's true, other, other things should flow from it. I don't particularly care why he said it. I take the heretical view that I, actually I don't think this was the government's fault. I think it was the Metropolitan Police's fault. And I think that Cressida Dick should be the person who takes the blame for it. I think that we have to acknowledge that we use this word Christianity very freely without defining it. And there have always been infinite number of varieties of Christianity. But I think at least people knew where the lines of demarcation were. Now, people don't have a clue. And as it happens, I think Boris does, because I remember once having a very brief conversation in, in which he talked about justification by faith alone in a sort of hearty, joking way but that, that he knew the distinction between different theories of justification was, well, actually, it was typical Boris. But on the whole, what goes along with the throat-clearing, apologetic, hand-wringing, forgive the clichés, but they're so true in the case of Welby, of the Christian leadership, is a failure to articulate what Christianity is. Now, it was always difficult, particularly in the Church of England, to square the circle between Protestants and Catholics, which is one reason you got out, I think. But we barely have even a vague idea of what Christianity is and what it stands for at a time when bishops are so anxious simply to parade their humanitarian impulses. But I, I agree. But explain this to me. Here is Boris taking one of the most powerful um, and nuclear and uncompromising sayings of Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life, if I'm, if I'm remembering the, the excerpt properly. That, that ought to have caused ructions and offence. <laughs> Is it just that people are used to Boris saying things without paying attention to them? Because there hasn't been a reaction to it, and there should have been. My explanation for that would be that the whole subject of Christianity is such a turn-off for people. They are so massively bored by it. It's one of the few subjects on which the Prime Minister can say something controversial and nobody will notice. What bothers me is that there will be no follow-through in society generally. Not only have there been you know, no protests at this surprising use of explicitly Christian language by the Prime Minister from the Liberal Intelligentsia, but there seems to be, I've lost track of how many times I've said this, absolutely no plan for the development of Christianity in our culture by the churches themselves. Absolutely nothing. We do see in the United States 
certain Christians, particularly Catholics, taking a much more explicitly political, almost pugilistic approach to attempting to construct a Christian culture. And I talked about this on Holy Smoke before. I think it's taking the form of a ludicrous fantasy called integralism or common good constitutionalism, the idea that Christianity can somehow be forced on the American public and why the proponents of this philosophy are taken seriously by leading Catholics, I do not know. But there is that. There's also, I'm no fan of his, but Rod Dreher's Benedict Option, which is another, a blind alley, I think. But at least in America, people are thinking about how Christianity might actually fight back. And I can just see all these bishops recoiling at the use of the word fight. Yes, it's, it's, it's too Trumpian a term for many people to want to be endorsed. But I agree with you that, that in Europe, uh, we need to try and recover some of our energy, our inspiration and our idealism after having been battered so enthusiastically by secularism for the last hundred years. But, but you know, it's Easter and that's exactly what the resurrection of Christ is about. It is about the triumph of all the, the hope and the sacredness uh, and the metaphysics and the values of life over death, love over hatred, and joy over depression. So every major Easter festival ought to be a launching pad for Christians to both speak and live this renewal of vision that our society needs and we need to offer. Well, Gavin, this is not empty flattery when I say that you are one of the people I look to to do this. And I just hope that the church will recognise your particular, and I think overwhelming, talents in this field. If I may just be a little bit sentimental and mention that last year I lost to cancer one of my very closest friends, Professor Stephen O'Leary of the University of Southern California. And a few days before he died, he wrote to me saying how, how bowled over he'd been by listening to you on this podcast. You have one of the most persuasive voices in the public square. So for goodness sake, Gavin, let's hear even more of it. Damien, thank you. I'll do my best. And thank you for offering this platform for a conversation between the two of us on such an important issue.